say welcome to the guests who are here this morning. We welcome you in the name of the Lord. The last time that we were together, we examined the increasing hostility between Jesus and the Jews who were constantly opposing him in John chapter 8, verse 39 through 47. As they engaged in a discussion that turns into a heated debate. And they will continue to debate, and this debate will continue to escalate until we get to the end of this chapter. Last week, as Isaiah ministered, we looked at the the makeup of a child of Satan and the makeup of a child of God. As we look at these final 11 verses in this chapter, we will see the confrontation escalate to a point that Jesus must escape for his life. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, John chapter 8. We are going to be in verses 48 through 59. We'll finish the chapter today. The word of the Lord says, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If my father, it is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. You, your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated this morning in the presence of God. It has been no secret that this chapter has been one of of conflict. And as we read just in the portion that we read right now, you can feel the tension rising as you read each verse. This chapter has been one of constant assaults against the Lord Jesus Christ. Ten assaults to be exact. Ten assaults on the Lord Jesus Christ in this chapter. Ten times he is attacked. And the same thing happened in the previous chapter. The same accusations, the same threats. This actually goes all the way back to the second chapter of the Gospel of John. When Jesus goes into the temple, turns over the money tables, bringing a halt to the blasphemous actions that were taking place there in the temple. It's no surprise to us that he's opposed. It should be no surprise to us that he is being persecuted Because Jesus must be persecuted. This is what happens to those who preach the truth. If you preach the truth, you will be persecuted. Truth is always opposed because people like to suppress truth. As Romans says, they don't want truth. They push truth down. And when you force truth up, they fight you to keep it down. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 10, when you are persecuted, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice. 
and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Question, have you noticed that of all of the religions in the world, the most persecuted religion is that of Protestant evangelical Christianity who hold up the truth of God's word. Hindus are not being persecuted. Muslims are not being persecuted. Do you realize this? Buddhists are not being persecuted. Even Roman Catholics, to a certain extent, are not being persecuted. Why? Because they are all a part of the same kingdom of darkness that is headed by Satan. They are all a part of the same apostate false religions. And Satan cannot fight against himself. So Satan does a Hindu doesn't go and persecute a a Muslim because they're all a part of the same false religion. They're all a part of the same false kingdom of darkness that is headed by Satan. Satan cannot cannot be divided against Satan since he is the author of all false religions. Amen. Amen. He attacks the only truth that will oppose all other false religions and do so boldly. When we declare in John, like John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through him. Right. We're not surprised when we are persecuted, when we say things like this, because it's the truth. We're not surprised when the culture has fixed its eyes on Christ, on his church and on God's holy word. They're simply attacking truth because Satan, who they are the children of, hates the truth. It is a sign that we're doing something right when the kingdom of darkness pursues the church and attempts to destroy her. They want to destroy the truth. Why do you think the homosexual community is going straight after Muslims? No. Hindus? No. Protestant evangelical Christians who hold up the truth of God's word and say, this is wrong. It was shocking when Jesus came to the religious authority of his day. Those who believed that they were the most right with God. And he tells them to their face and and boldly, you and your system are from the devil. More clearly, John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. This is one of the the more favorite scriptures that my dad liked to quote for some reason. (laughs) And what was the result? What was their response? There's only two responses. They either repent and trust in him and say, how can we be made right with God? Or they will be not they will not be able to contain their rage and their fury and they will seek to kill him. The question I was thinking as I was studying is why would Jesus elevate this conflict? Why would he antagonize them? Why would he poke at them? Why does he say you're liars? You're murderers. You're children of Satan. You would think that's not very nice. It's amazing how the people who say Jesus is is love. They never read this passage, did they? Where he calls people liars. Where he calls people murderers. Where he calls people children of the devil. Why would he do this? What's the need to antagonize them? Because it's true. Number one, because it's true. That's exactly what every person is apart from faith in Christ alone. They are liars. They are murderers. They are children of Satan apart from Christ. And the sooner that you get that, the sooner that you come to grips with the fact that not everyone's a child of God, only those who have been called by Christ and placed their faith in Christ are children of God, the sooner it will be easier for you to share that 
Because that's the bad news. And the good news, but you can be saved if you repent and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Don't walk up to them and say, you're good. Well, then what do you need to talk to me for if I'm good? Let me get on my good way. It may seem harsh, but it's important to tell people the bad news so that they will love and appreciate the good news. The good news is that they are not okay. Or the good, th- the good news is that they can be okay. As long as they trust in Christ. The bad news is that they are not okay. That they are not good people. That their goods will not outweigh their bads when they stand before God. And they will not be okay when they stand before Him to be judged. I was speaking to a 15-year-old boy yesterday. I thought he was 19 or 20. It's amazing. Named Andrew. The message I gave to him, because I asked him, how will you go to heaven? He says, well, I'm not a very selfish guy. I think I'll be okay. And I said to him, your goods will never be good enough. And your goods will never beat the best of Christ. You present before God your goods. He's going to take those goods and say they're filthy rags and toss you along us along. You're going to toss you and them aside and say, get these filthy things away from me because you are rejecting the best in order for your good. The best is Christ. So why did Jesus do this? Because it's necessary. It's an act of mercy. Do you realize this? To tell them that they're liars is an act of mercy. To tell them that they're murderers and tell them that they're children of Satan is an act of mercy. How in the world is it an act of mercy? Mercy comes and it shatters all of their false securities. Because they come to Christ or he comes to them and they think that they're okay. He squashes, he smashes all of the false truths that they have about themselves that we're okay. And in order for those to be smashed, he must confront them to the core of who they think they are. You're not good. As a matter of fact, you're the opposite of good. You're a child of Satan. Well, they've never heard this because they've walked around all this time thinking that they were the most holy of the holy. They were the separated ones. Jesus comes to them and says, no, you are not the holy of the holy. You are the evil of the evil. What, was, what, was, what else was he supposed to say to them? You guys are right. You are living exactly the way that God wants you to live. Keep it up, fellas. That's what they wanted him to say. But that was not the truth. The people that you went witness to, the people that you evangelize, they want you to say, God loves you and walk away with a smile. Instead of you're under the wrath of God. If you don't repent and trust in Christ. It was an act of mercy to tell them that they were not children of God, but that they were children of Satan. And because without it, they would continue in their false securities. Without telling them where they are wrong, they would continue to live in that wrong way. It would be like someone driving toward a dead end cliff and you know it's there. But you say to them, because you don't want to offend them, keep going. You're headed the right direction. I don't want to offend you or step on any toes. And a few moments later, you hear the wily coyote. No, we must, Christ must squash, shatter every sense of false security because he he cared enough to tell them that they were wrong. He cared enough to tell them that they were in danger. See, people see that as hate preaching. That's love preaching. I love you enough to tell you that you're wrong. Wouldn't you like that? 
Wouldn't you like it if someone told you that you had a booger on your face instead of going the rest of your day with that thing on your face? I would very much appreciate that. So if you ever see that with me, please let me know. The last time that I had the privilege to speak to you was four Sundays ago, which is probably why I'm acting like the way I'm acting. The message that I preached was called the four roads. I had one person say to me, I don't like that sermon. I don't know why you're saying the things that you're saying to all these people, because we're all believers in here. Why would you preach like that? I had another person say, on the other hand, I like that. I like to be offended. That's my kind of preaching. I would just like all of you to know that I never and we never curb our sermons to your liking. I don't sit down at my desk when I begin to study and say, I wonder what Philip and Ariana are going to like this week. I really want them to smile. I want them to laugh. It would be good for them. I, I hope, Ari, I hope uh, Arnold and, and Karina really enjoy it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to curb it to their life. No, I never, we never do that. Which is why we preach expositionally. This is what the Bible says. This is what it means, whether you like it or not. I preach, we preach the Bible. We let God says what he says. And we bow our knee before what he has said. So these people were being exposed for what they were. And in the process of this discussion and debate, you see really how the pattern of discussion or debate usually goes. A debate usually begins on an intellectual level. There is a discussion. Each person is presenting their side. Each person is presenting their case. When that doesn't work, it goes to the next level. The next level comes when you get emotional. You can't get your point across. You can't convince the other person. And so the heat begins to rise. You get emotional. The next level is you start to verbally assault one another. Since you can't win the argument, and since you can't convince the other person, you start to call them names. Which is what they're doing here. And finally, if that doesn't work, if that doesn't get the other person mad enough, then they just start going to blows. The final level is you get physical. Shot to the chops and <laughs> let the chips fall where they may. So I encourage you, be aware of this as you are having discussions with people. Because this is usually the progression that it will take. You have no idea how many people have walked away from me in anger. Thank God I have not been in any fights over the gospel. You can go to YouTube and watch street debates and you can see the discussion go from discussions to acts of violence because people are not able to have a conversation and admit that they're wrong or that they don't have all the answers. So they can't beat you up with logic. Decide to just beat you up. This is essentially what's happening here. They cannot win an intellectual argument against Jesus because he's the truth incarnate. That's kind of a, a losing battle. So they become angry and bitter, and all they can do is call him names. You're demon possessed, you're insane. And at the end of this chapter, they're going to just start trying to kill him. Eventually, they will believe that by killing him, they somehow win. But not realizing it was the plan of God all along. And these last few verses, we will see a pattern. We're going to see a pattern, if you're taking notes, of blasphemy, truth, 
and a gracious invitation. Then again, blasphemy, truth, and a gracious invitation. Then one more time, blasphemy, truth, and then a complete change that we'll have to find out happens in the end. You must know this. Love goes after the lost. Love does not leave them alone. That's why we were at the marketplace. That's why we go to the the parks to preach the gospel. That's why we go with the puppets to preach the gospel. Because love does not leave the lost alone. Love goes after the lost. We don't leave people in false religions alone. We go after them. They are the mission field. As me and Bobby were sharing with two believers yesterday, uh, he was tempted to tell them about their false church. And I said, listen, we're here to go after the lost. As far as we know, they have their faith in Christ and we'll go after more lost people. But that's why we're there. They may be persecuting you at work. They may be persecuting you at school. But ultimately, the world is your mission field. They are the ones who need the gospel. And you are the one who has it. And you are the one who is to take it to them. When you are being persecuted, you must respond like Christ. Give truth and give a gracious invitation. So number one, let's look at these three phases. It's blasphemy, truth, and invitation. Gracious invitation. 48, verse 48. The Jews answered him. This is all in response to the previous verses. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, apparently, those who opposed Christ, the Jews, had made a consensus statement about Jesus. And it was this. He's demon possessed. So the word began to spread around all those who were in leadership that this man, Jesus, is out of his mind. He's a demon possessed man. In Matthew chapter 12, they said to him or about him, he does what he does by the power of Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan. They were spreading the word that he was a demon possessed man, and that he was able to perform the miracles that he was performing because he was under the power of Satan. Jesus said to them in Luke eleven seventeen, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste or will fall and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan is is Satan fights against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Satan does not work against himself. If being called a demon-possessed man was not um, bad enough, they also called him a Samaritan. You're a demon-possessed man, you're out of your mind, and you're also a Samaritan. The Gospel of John is the only Gospel that records Jesus being called a Samaritan. What's the point of that? They were a disgraced race. They were a mixed breed of Jew and Gentile as a result of intermarrying between Jews and a pagan nation found in 2 Kings chapter 17. So through the centuries, the Jews had no dealings with these people. They lived in separate communities and they also worshipped separately. They were seen as the lowest of the low. Jesus, when he met the woman at the the well, the Samaritan woman, she says to him in John chapter 4, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. What are you doing even talking to me? They were seen as traitors of the worst kind. This may also be another jab at Jesus because the rumor was also that Mary had an affair with a Roman soldier. And Jesus was the result of that. 
They're constantly poking at Jesus. They're constantly calling him names. So it would be like calling him a Samaritan. It would be like calling him, you're a devil times two. And it was pure blasphemy of the Holy One of God. If they call them names, don't lose heart when they call you names. If they persecuted him, don't be surprised when they persecute you. And say all kinds of false things about you on account of Christ. You must respond like Christ. Don't call them. My son and I have been watching Little Rascals every day. You don't need to call them a sissified Tweety Bird. A mud munching uh, something. I forget what it is. But you don't need to respond back to them in that way. You respond with truth. Verse 49. Here's the truth. I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Here's the truth. You are heaping massive insults on me. But the truth is, I don't have a demon. Calm, cool, collective. I seek to honor the father and you dishonor me. Christ was from the father. All he did, all that he said was from the father. And yet they were attributing all that he did and all that he said to the devil. While at the same time calling themselves children of God and children of Abraham. Jesus said to them in John eight forty two, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God. He said in John seven sixteen, this teaching is not mine, but is from the one who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. You are dishonoring God because you're dishonoring me. You say you are from you say you are children of God and I am from God and yet you are dishonoring me as if I was from the devil. Jesus gives him the truth. I have no demon. I honor God and you can't be children of God because you dishonor me. In effect, Jesus was saying by insulting me, you're insulting God in dishonoring me. You're dishonoring God. And then he takes it one step further. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Think about this. He's highlighting his humility. You can talk about me, but I didn't come here to get glory for myself. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 6, that though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself of all of his glory, of all of his rights, of all of his heavenly prerogatives by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. He highlights the way in which he laid aside all of those heavenly rights. All of the heavenly privileges. And he has not come to seek glory for himself. He's seeking glory for the father. And think about this. The father is seeking glory for the son. (laughs) It's a mystery we will never really comprehend. J.C. Ryle says a true messenger from heaven never seeks his own glory, but seeks the glory of his master. This is exactly what Jesus was proclaiming. He said a number of times, John 5, John 7, and on and on. He's seeking the glory of God. And that is the essence of his incarnation. He, was, he, come, he came to seek the glory of God. And if he came to seek his own glory, then he should have just stayed where he was. Because he was full of his own glory there. That's why he prays in John 17, 4, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He didn't come to get glory. He came to love sinners. He came to feel their pain. He came to die their death. That's not glory. That's humiliation. That's not glory. That's humiliation. When he had accomplished all of those things, now he's ready to be exalted by the Father. And the Father gives him a name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus. Every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. He responds to their blasphemy by saying, I honor my Father. I seek his glory. And you dishonor me. There is one who seeks glory. It is the Father. It's all over Scripture. He's seeking glory for the Son. All over Scripture that the Messiah would be exalted to the point that one day every knee would bow again and every tongue would confess. The Father has confirmed Him. The Father has spoken of Him constantly. And He confirmed Him again at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son. He confirmed Him at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Jesus responds to the assaults of his opposers, his enemies, with absolute truth. He does not sugarcoat it. He does not hold back. He is as forceful with truth as they are as forceful with their blasphemy and dishonor. And Jesus says something then that baffles my mind. Because I know how rudely I would have handled this conversation. I know how I would have been just as ready to respond to a fight. As they were ready to bring a fight. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does not respond the way that we, or at least I, would respond. Instead, he concludes his thought like this. Verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you. Think about this. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What is that? They've been abusive. They've been false, they've been aggressive, they've been blasphemous, and instead of snuffing them out with a bolt of lightning like I would have done, he gives them a gracious invitation. You are a sinner, you are following a false religion, right now you are a child of Satan, but if you believe in me, turn from your sin, keep my word, you will never see that. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the grace in in that comment You can be saved. You don't have to let your life end this way. You can abide in me and you can live. Today you can be snatched from the kingdom of darkness and be brought into the kingdom of light. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as your fathers did when they were in the desert. You will have life. Come to Christ. Come to him. What a gracious God we serve that he, in the midst of being ridiculed, in the midst of being slandered, in the midst of being called a devil and the lowest of all people in society, that he would say to them, but if you trust in me and take my word and believe in it, you will live. How do you and how would you respond if you're giving grace and you're giving truth and you're giving gospel to someone and they tell you to go fly a kite? You know what your response would be. I'm going to tie you to that kite and fly you out. You know how we would respond. But instead he gives them a gracious invitation to life. He says to them that you'll not see death. 
It's the second death, the eternal death. Christ, Christ instead offers them eternal life. And this is how we must respond. Because persecution will come. Abuse will come. Gossip will come. And how will you respond? You must respond like Christ with truth. I recently finished the book Pilgrim's Progress and the two pilgrims who are traveling to the celestial city. Their names are Christian and faithful. They travel and they run into the fair. Coincidentally. They run into the fair. The fair is called Vanity Fair. It's a place where all the vanities of life are celebrated and enjoyed by all the pilgrims who are on their way to the celestial city. But they got caught up in the vanities at this fair. And they ended up making the fair their home. Because there was too much there for them to enjoy. So much pleasure that they could not see beyond the fair to the celestial city. The fair opens this Wednesday, and I hope that you don't get stuck there as well. <laughs> and while they're at the fair, all these vanities and indulgences are being sold and offered to them. And when the pilgrims, Christian and faithful, come through, they're offered all of these different vices. The two pilgrims turn to them who are offering them all of these vices, and they say to them together, we buy truth. <laughs> truth was not for sale at the vanity. Truth was only ahead of them. It was not in the Vanity Fair. And when the world comes to you and offers compromise, agreeing to disagree, persecuting you, we say with fire and we say with those who are on their way also to the celestial city, we buy truth. We will not compromise. We will not settle. We will not say, yes, you're right. And yes, you're right. And I'm right, too. We're all right together. No, we buy truth. We don't back down. We don't give in. And we respond like Christ and give them a gracious invitation of the truth. That all sinners apart from Christ are enemies of God. They live under the wrath of God and they will be judged by their sin or for their sin if they do not turn to Christ. But if you do turn to Christ, as I said to the three kids who were looking at me yesterday, all of them who said they don't believe in God. If you do trust in Christ, you will find him to be a perfect savior. You will find the sacrifice to be perfect for your sins. The one who lived perfectly, died sacrificially for the sins of all who would believe in him. He also rose from the dead to conquer sin, death, the grave. And he offers you grace so that you can be saved if you repent and trust in Christ alone. Give them a gracious invitation. I said to those three who said they didn't believe in God, they said, well, I don't see any evidences. And I asked them, well, do you believe that murder is wrong? They immediately all together in unison, like a choir, said yes. I said, do you believe that, that, that lying is wrong? And they said, eh, yeah, it depends, you know, depends on if you want to tell someone they look good when they really don't. <laughs> I said, do you believe that cheating is wrong? And they together as a choir said, yes. I said, I don't need to give you evidences for the, for, I, I don't need to give you evidence for the existence of God. All I got to do is point to you because you have the law of God written on your conscience. And how do I know that? Because you, without being told or without even having your mama tell you, hey, now murder is wrong. You know, it's wrong because God has written that on your heart. And now the truth that I'm preaching to you, their eyes were, were like this to this. You are in sin. You need Christ and you must turn to him. If you don't, you will spend eternity apart from him. And you know that's true. You know you're not going to spend the rest of your life in a box. Someone sit in an ashtray. 
you know that's not true. Because if it was true, then you would be living for today. You would be robbing banks, stealing cars, and live it up. Because who cares? You're going to die anyways. But you know there's something after this life. And you know you will be judged for it. Don't you want to be a part of that conversation? Then go, go out when he's out at, at the park. I had the same conversation, and Arnold actually said the same thing to me when we were there. What's the difference? I said, Arnold, I've talked to people in the marketplace, and I've talked to people at the park. Guess what? They both had the same problem. They both were living in sin, and they both didn't think the Bible was true. Just because one is, is homeless and the other one's not, doesn't change their depravity. They are in need of Christ. What was the response to their gracious invitation? A lot like what we get sometimes. Verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. (laughs) Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Not very much progress there, is there? They scorn the invitation. They will scorn your invitation. Don't be surprised. Here is the best of the best giving the gospel. And they're saying, you have a demon. So don't be surprised when you walk up to someone and say, hey, can I share the gospel with you? And they say, no. Don't go back to your car and say, I'm done. They dishonor God again by dishonoring Christ. And they once again turn on him. They believed again, demon possessed. And that they were God possessed. Now he's promising no death. How can this be? Now they were thinking of a literal physical death of a human being. And here's how they thought. Only a demon would make such a, pro- uh, such a promise. Do you think that you're greater than all of the men who died? And here's here's how they thought about it. They all died, Jesus. You don't have power over death. Even Abraham did not have this kind of power. Even the prophets did not have this kind of power because they're thinking about a literal physical death. There are heroes and they're dead. Only a demon possessed man would say that. Here's what they're thinking. They reason that because Abraham heard God and obeyed the word of God. Why would he die? And he's dead. The prophets heard God, obeyed God, and they are dead. You're coming to us and now saying, if anybody hears you and obeys you, they won't die? Are you somehow greater than Abraham? Are you somehow superior to Abraham and the prophets? Only a demon-possessed, insane man would say that. But Jesus was and is greater than Abraham and the prophets. For the words that they believed, the words that they shared, were from Christ himself. Amen. Amen. Okay. Making sure you're okay with that. They were not speaking on their own account. They were being moved by the Spirit of God. And the Word of God became incarnate and He was standing in front of them. Jesus knew what they were implying. He knew what they were saying. So how does He respond? With truth. Verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. 
And I keep his word. You keep saying God is your God. But you're dishonoring him by dishonoring me. This was enough evidence for Christ. or There was enough evidence for Christ already to be affirmed. And yet they rejected him. This is the truth, though. He says, I know him. He says, if I said I didn't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. And not only do not only that, but you boast in how you are the righteous ones who keep the law. No, I keep the law. You don't keep the law. I keep the law. I live it perfectly, he says. And by failing to listen to me, you are failing to be what you claim to be and failing to live what you claim to live. This is their response. This is the response of Christ. And think about this again. Yet in the midst of this confrontation, there was once again a calling for them to receive life. Once again, they're calling him a demon, saying he's no greater than Abraham, the prophets. And he responds with another gracious invitation. He says this. 56. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Now, I need you to think. Isaiah said last week, Abraham welcomed Christ. Remember when Abraham had those three visitors and and Abraham brings them in and he eats with them and he honors them. It's Christ. Abraham also understood the promise that was given to him of a seed. When you read in the book of Genesis, you don't see the word seeds. But that God promises Abraham a seed. It is the same seed that is promised in the book of Genesis chapter 3. The seed that would come, bruise the heel, but ultimately have his head crushed by this seed. Abraham is looking and believing, looking back and looking forward to the seed who is Christ. Abraham is looking back to that promise And looking forward to that promise. Who is Christ. Amen. Amen. He knew that Isaac represented more than just a promised child from his own line. He knew that Isaac represented Christ. He knew that Isaac knew that Esau and Jacob. That one of his children represented Christ. They knew that as the line moved on, Judah represented Christ. They knew that as the line moved on, Ruth represented Christ. They knew that as the line moved on, Jesse represented Christ, and David represented Christ, and Solomon represented Christ. And as you move on down the line, you see the, the line in Matthew, and you see the line in Luke of all those who were, who were related. And you point it all the way back to Abraham, and then you see the seed. Christ, here he is, the promised one. That is called covenant theology. Those of you who were here during Richard Barcellus, I don't know what he's talking about. That's what he was talking about. Abraham knew that the seed would come and that he would come and set free those who were bound by sin and who would believe in him. He knew the seed would come and bring many sons and daughters into the kingdom of God if they had faith in that seed who was Christ. Even Abraham himself was saved by believing in Christ. Do you know that? Abraham believed in Christ and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Abraham saw Christ and he rejoiced. Do you know how Abel was saved? By believing in Christ. Do you know how Adam and Eve were saved? Were they saved? By believing in Christ. What are you talking about? Well, there was a promise given. And Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. Abraham saw Christ and he rejoiced. Listen to this. Christ was Abraham's joy. Not Isaac. Although Isaac was a joy of his life, Christ ultimately was Abraham's joy. What's your joy? Who is your joy? Where is it found? What Christ is saying to these hard-hearted, stiff-necked people is this. Why don't you join in Abraham's joy? You say Abraham is your father. He had joy because of me. Why don't you join him? Join him. Why don't you rejoice for that which Abraham rejoiced? Christ himself. Why don't you rejoice for that which Christ or for which Abraham rejoiced? Christ himself. He is your joy. He is your satisfaction. Christ is inviting them to be satisfied in Him. Yes, 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 yes. Are you satisfied in Him this morning? Yes, yes, yes. He rejoiced, Christ says, because of me. Where is your joy? Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse or 11, 13. These all died in faith. Speaking of all the heroes of faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They saw them in the distance and greeted them, rejoiced because of them. Who are they seeing? What are they seeing? Christ, grace. They're seeing glory. All of these things that are coming or that are in Christ. Abraham saw Christ from a distance. Sarah saw Christ from a distance. Isaac saw Christ from a distance. Jacob saw Christ from a distance. The prophets, they saw Christ, the seed. And John identifies that seed when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 129. Behold the seed. He's come. Why would you not want to enter into that joy? What's the response? The Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham. Jesus at the time is is in his 30s. So between 30 and maybe 32 Actually, maybe 33 depends. You're a joke. You know Abraham? Here's the truth. Since we are being consistent with the pattern of truth, since you want to blaspheme me, now it's my turn to tell you truth. And here it is. Truly, truly. This is a a whopper. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, you may not and we may not be moved by that. Jesus noticed does he does not say I was. He says I am. If he says I was, then he's not an eternal being. He says I am. He always is. Not I was. I am. I always have been, and I always will be. He says, I am. The name of God. And they knew that was the name of God because he would have essentially said I am, or he would have said Yahweh. Which is the name of God. It's the the tetragrammatron from uh, Exodus chapter 14. When God says to Moses, 
who should I say when Moses says to God, who should I say that sent me? He says to them, tell them I am that I am. Jesus says to them before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternal one. Let's let's just end this argument now. Let's get down, as Nacho Libre says, to the nitty gritty. I am who I am. I am the one who called light out of darkness. I am the one who said, let there be light. I am the one who said, let us make man in our own image. I am the one who commanded they shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I am the one who spoke from the burning bush. I am the one who parted the Red Sea. I am and I was the pillar of fire by day and the cloud by night. You want to know who I am? Let me just kill this argument. I am the eternal one. What would you do if someone said that to you? You might do what they did. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. That's it. Debate is over. We're going to kill you. You're dead. (laughs) They knew what he was saying. For those who ever say Jesus never claimed to be God. Read this to them. Because they knew exactly what he was saying. There's another verse where he says, where they picked up stones. He goes, for what? What good deed are you trying to kill me? They said, no, not for one good deed. Actually, it comes later. Not for a good deed, but you claim to be God. You, a man, claim to be God. They wanted him dead. Now there is no gracious invitation. Jesus, 59, hid himself and went out of the temple. There's a lot of people there while this is going on. The gracious, they had been given two gracious invitations. And if you count the previous chapters, they've been given even more. And they continually choose to reject that invitation. Listen to me, all of you who share and evangelize and are bold about your faith. There comes a time when even the best have to walk away. There comes a time when even the best have to walk away. Now, it may be a noble thing for you to be a martyr. But if you can get away, get away and live to fight another day or live to share the gospel another day. There comes a point which in which you will either receive this truth and this gracious invitation or you will not. And you will be judged because of your rejection of truth. Someone had asked me a few weeks ago, Pastor, after saying what you have been saying concerning repent, faith in Christ, why don't you have an altar call? And I said to him, brother, show me an altar call in the Bible. Well, what must people do when they hear something like this? There's got to be something that they can do. I said, yes, there is something that they can do. They can repent, turn from their sin, place their faith in Christ, and live for His glory. So if you're hearing this today, and you're thinking, I'm going to lay hands on you, I'm not. If you think I'm going to lead you in a prayer, I'm not. If you think I'm going to ask you to walk down an aisle or sign a card, I'm not. I'm going to ask you... To do what Christ is telling you to do. Repent. Trust in him alone for your salvation. And abide in his word. You will have life. This gracious invitation has been given to you today. As our hearts are being prepared for fellowship with the Lord at his table. You are given again a gracious invitation. The truth is that Christ has come to offer life. And those who hear his voice. You have heard 
that and will respond to that because he's opened up your ears and your heart to do so. He offers you life. Everlasting life. He offers you forgiveness for the sin that you cannot overcome apart from his sacrificial death. He offers you grace, a gift from God that you cannot earn and one that you could not pay back. He offers you love. A love that knows no match in this life. If you're a member.